Good afternoon. It's Friday the 15th of January 2021. Welcome to the UK Column News. Uh, it's just after one o'clock. Our host today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire and myself, Mike Robinson. Uh, we're going to get straight on, Patrick, with, well, deaths as a result of the Pfizer vaccine, or at least that seems to be the case. Uh, it's uh, an article from Global Times. Now, I've seen a number of uh, people talking about this, uh, but there wasn't too much in the mainstream press for some strange reason. Certainly didn't see anything in the British mainstream press about it, uh, but the Chinese have covered it. And uh, the headline here is Chinese health experts call to suspend Pfizer's mRNA vaccine for elderly after Norwegian deaths. And they're saying that, uh, uh, especially amongst elderly people, due to the vaccine's safety uncertainties following the deaths of 23 elderly Norwegian people who received the vaccine, uh, they go on to say that the new mRNA vaccine was developed in haste and has never been uh, test used on a large scale for the prevention of infectious disease. Its safety has not been confirmed for large scale use in humans. Uh, and they're saying that uh, the death incidents in Norway also proved that the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine's efficacy was not as good as expected. Uh, as of Thursday, uh, that was yesterday, uh, Norway has reported 23 deaths in connection with vaccination uh, and uh, two of the COVID-19 vaccines uh, from Pfizer, BioNTech uh, and Moderna are used in Norway. Uh, the vaccines have been developed on mRNA technology and have received temporary approval in the EU, according to the agency. Well, the question is, is Global Times correct? This, of course, is effectively Chinese state media. Uh, so let's have a look. And here is the Norwegian equivalent of the MHRA. Um, and uh, that's the headline. Uh, we'll just do a quick translate of that. Reported side effects after coronavirus vaccine. Uh, as of January the 14th, 2021, 23 deaths have been reported in connection with vaccination. So far, 13 of those have been assessed. Common side effects may have contributed to the severe uh, course. Well, this is a slightly bad translation, but nonetheless, in frail elderly people. And that is the key point of, uh, of the Norwegian uh, statement here. Uh, but Patrick, you'll be glad to know, therefore, uh, that the British government is extremely excited about the fact that more than a third of over 80s have now been vaccinated against COVID-19. Uh, COVID uh, we haven't heard anything from government, from the Office for National Statistics, or from uh, Public Health England, or from the NHS, or from anyone else, about how many of those over 80s have had adverse reactions. Of course, as we pointed out on the programme uh, earlier in the week, uh, the MHRA does have a section, a, a website for their so-called uh, yellow card incidents, which is where they're uh, recording adverse reactions as a result of COVID-19 vaccines, but they're not publishing any data. So the government saying uh, more than a third, that's one million, a third of the one million people aged 80, over in uh, over 80, in, sorry, aged 80 and over in England have received at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccine as of the 10th of January. Uh, and uh, they're saying that older people are more likely to die from COVID-19, which is why they've been given the vaccination first. Well, it seems like they're on the right pathway, uh, so to speak, Mike. The right Cor pathway, Cor indeed. According to the uh, Norwegian reports there. Isn't that interesting? So China, China is throwing up a roadblock for the, the mRNA vaccines. They're, well, if you want to call them vaccines, that's a, an, another topic that's being hotly debated right now, whether they actually are vaccines or whether they are therapeutics or medical devices, as some uh, experts mm -hmm. have said. So if China uh, blocks that, that's uh, that's quite a big thing. It's, you know, population 1.5 billion, uh, major partner with the World Health Organization. So wouldn't that have ripple effects uh, right across the world, uh, especially in terms of the WHO? Well, you would think so if anybody was, if there's any sort of public recognition that this type of thing was going on. But of course, silence in the press means it isn't happening. I can't imagine why the uh, British and American presses aren't running with this as their lead story on every major media outlet. Why wouldn't they? I uh, can't imagine. We might uh, offer a suggestion in a few seconds time. But I just want to finish this segment by, by quoting a little bit more from this press release. Public Health England will continue to monitor the long-term safety uptake and efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine. So this is a trial that's going on at the moment, uh, and uh, they are going to monitor it, but they're not going to tell us. The trial uh, is the public at large. Yes. So that the, the real trial is being done by the public. So is this, this is unprecedented. Totally unprecedented. So, so this is, this is an intermediate phase 
of a trial that's meant to take two years, and they'll report back to us on how things went after two years. In other words, what happened to the public? Or they might not report back at all because uh, we've got silence, crickets, uh, tumbleweed, however you want to describe it. So is this not the world's biggest ever uh, human experiment in uh, effectively <laughs> a genetic experiment because it, it is gene therapy uh, by the definition of gene therapy, uh, injecting RNA into another human and expecting that to insert itself in the human genome by definition that is uh, gene therapy, or a type of genetic uh, engineer, engineering, actually, by definition. And this is being done without any uh, clinical, final animal trials, clinical trials. It should take 10 years to, uh, to, to, to test and regulate an experimental, brand new uh, genetic technology, right? Uh, absolutely. Well, look, let's consider the silence of the press on this. Um, and uh, well, you know, many people critical of the press, justifiably so, uh, for basically towing the government line on everything that's been going on the last year and a year and a bit. A uh, couple of voices have been out there uh, giving an alternative narrative, and one of them has been Toby Young. Now, many people are critical of Toby Young. I don't know who he is, what he is really, but uh, nonetheless, he was publishing some useful stuff in the Telegraph. Uh, which was questioning the official narrative. And this was one example of it from uh, July, I think, uh, last year. When we have herd immunity, Boris will face a reckoning on this pointless and damaging lockdown. Now, of course, Toby, Toby Young also behind the Lockdown Skeptics website. So he's clearly coming from a particular position. And nobody really is any in any doubt about that whenever they read this article. This is coming from somebody who is uh, promoting uh, a, a, a position and uh, nonetheless, there was a complaint went in to IPSO, which is uh, the regulator for the, the, the Daily Telegraph is uh, part of. Um, and uh, well, they have decided to find against Toby Young for this article. So this article is actually no longer on the, uh, the Telegraph website. Um, so the, this, the article was arguing that uh, cross-reactive T cells, um, although they're not actually mentioned in the article, uh, would provide uh, natural immunity. Um, so uh, basically the, the, the uh, newspaper, the Telegraph was suggesting that, that Young was saying this. Nonetheless, uh, is that an unfair position to take? The T-cells would create herd immunity. Well, actually there's quite a bit of scientific literature on this as we've covered in the past. This is from Science T-cell found in COVID-19 patients bode well for long-term immunity. Here's another scientific patient, uh, scientific article here, targets of T-cell responses to, to SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus in humans with COVID-19 disease and unexposed individuals. And this was the key point. Importantly, we detected SARS-CoV-2 reactive CD4 T-cells in 40 to 60% of unexposed individuals, people that had never been exposed to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 suggesting cross-reactive T-cell recognition between circulating common cold coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2. And this was uh, basically backed up by people that uh, generally in, are towing the government line in the academic community. So this is Sarah Gilbert here. It's possible we're underestimating the natural or already acquired immunity to this virus. There's certainly evidence that people have not developed antibodies, uh, but have developed a T-cell response. Uh, and this from uh, Sir John Bell, also from Oxford. Uh, so there's a probability that t background T cell immunity in people before they see the coronavirus. Uh, T cells get a bit tired once you get a bit older, so uh, they may not be as effective at removing a virus. And so he's basically making the point that people who are older have a worse re result. Do, sometimes due to a vitamin D deficiency, uh, actually. Yes, indeed. That, that was also connected with that. Uh, indeed. So coming back to Toby Young's article then, uh, here's the Ipso website. And uh, well, the case was brought by one person, a James Whitehead. We don't know anything about James Whitehead. We don't know what motivated him. Is he a doctor? Is he an immunologist? Is he a virologist? We don't know. Uh, but this was uh, Whitehead versus Telegraph.co.uk. Uh, and the basis of the argument was that the Telegraph was in breach of Clause 1 accuracy uh, of the code. Uh, the press must take care not to publish inaccurate, misleading or distorted information or images, including headlines 
not supported by the text. Well, I wonder where we've seen a headline not supported by the text in the last few days. COVID 2020 saw most excess deaths since World War II. Uh, this we labeled as fake news on Monday. Uh, it absolutely is fake news. I think that's a breach of clause one of the code, but I don't see the BBC being taken to task by Ofcom uh, for this type of behavior. And that's, be that's happening on a daily basis. You'll find uh, fake news stories like this in the mainstream media on, on a daily basis. And Mike, in, in that complaint, the regulator made the statement, if I'm, if, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, T-cells don't confer natural immunity. We're gonna come on to that in a yeah. second. So, so let's get back to the IPSO complaint. Uh, they said the publication had failed to take care not to publish inaccurate and misleading information in breach of clause one. Uh, really, did they? I would like to know what qualifies IPSO to make that judgment because I'm not aware of that IPSO is packed with immunologists or virologists or other medical professionals that could make this judgment. Or maybe White, Mr. Whitehead is a, a qualified immunologist. Well, we can't or, know that. But we don't know. We can't know that. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. It noted that this statement, this is with the T-cell statement, uh, we noted that this statement could be misleading in two distinct ways. First, whether cross-reactive T-cells could contribute to herd immunity in London, and second, whether London was in fact probably approaching herd immunity. Again, Ipso not qualified to make that judgment. And in any case, uh, was Toby Young making a definitive statement or was he asking questions, offering a, uh, an opinion? Well, of course, we can never really find out because the, the article's now down off the Telegraph website. It is available on the uh, Wayback Machine if anybody wants to go and find it for themselves. Uh, but also in the uh, Ipso statement here, James Whitehead said, Prior exposure to, this is the point you were raising here, James Whitehead said, prior exposure to coronavirus might lead to cross-reactive T-cells, which may lessen the impact of COVID-19, but would not confer natural immunity. T-cells would not stop people getting infected at all and would not therefore contribute to herd immunity, as the article implied. Well, I've got to ask then, what does this say about the vaccine? Because the vaccine does not provide our immunity. It merely doesn't stop people getting infected either. It just reduces symptoms. Uh, and in fact, quite a bit of narrative that's going on at the minute is suggesting that uh, people that are vaccinated with reduced symptoms may in fact be able to spread the thing themselves. So where does this leave uh, the argument of the need to roll out a vaccine or even the narrative that the rollout of the vaccine will get us out of this uh, lockdown mess that the government has imposed upon us? Well, James Whitehead's words are quite telling, Mike. He's saying that, uh, you know, T-cells don't prevent infection, therefore uh, do not confer natural immunity. Well, what, what is the definition of immunity? Uh, and, you know, how is that term uh, described or defined uh, in this in the medical and scientific discourse or the public discourse? These are much deeper questions. If you want to go into the nuance, there's no way that you could say that that's a statement of fact. To say that we've shown you all the peer-reviewed scientific papers, how many do we have on T-cells? I don't know, there's probably hundreds, right? And T-cells is natural immunity. It does confer natural immunity. So in this case, the regulator is, has got their science wrong. Is it the job of the, reg, the press regulator to define the terms of science and medical research? Uh, it should not be. Uh, it seems to have become so. Now, the key point here is if Clause 1 is all about, well, let's look at what the, the full definition of Clause 1 is. It says, uh, uh, one, the press must take care not to publish inaccurate, misleading or distorted information or images, including headlines not supported by the text. Uh, two, a significant inaccuracy, misleading statement or distortion must be corrected promptly and with due prominence and where appropriate an apology pu published. In cases involving IPSO, due prominence should be as required by the regulator. Uh, and then the next point they make is the press, while free to editorialize and campaign, must distinguish clearly between comment, conjecture and fact. Um, well, the point here is, I think, that what we're seeing is the regulator attempting to impose editorial control on a, on a, a publisher. And this uh, really goes beyond the remit of the 
the, the regulator. There may be, what we're talking about here is a situation where we have a government pursuing a particular narrative. We have a very large body of the scientific community saying that that narrative is wrong. That large uh, part of the section of the scientific community is effectively being silenced by the mainstream press. And in the rare cases where the mainstream press attempts to get some of that information out, then what we have now is the regulator coming along and saying, no, 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 you can't do that. Right? This is very, very dangerous. They're, the, play, they're playing the ministry of truth. They Absolutely. And, and this is dangerous because this is exactly the same type of situation that we're seeing with respect to social media. So we've got the government attempting to encourage, and with some success, we have noted over the last number of weeks and months, uh, encourage the uh, platforms, the social media platforms, to become publishers and have editorial control. And where that editorial is control is not sufficient, the government intends to legislate to regulate that editorial control. So we end up with, with no platform for dissenting voices at all. This is extremely, as Brian would say, extremely dangerous. No, not, not just that, Mike, but just have dis discourse and debate. You can have disagreements because science itself, scientific dogma, uh, a lot of that is built on assumptions and often those assumptions become overturned. Why? Because new research has come to fore. New experiments, new results, have, and this happens every day. That is what science is. There is no such thing as the science. But increasingly, Mike, we see regulators, social media firms, YouTube uh, governments basically making it up as they go along. They're determining what the scientific line is, mm. what's supposed to be true, especially on COVID. Now, if I was the Telegraph, I would push back so hard on this, and I wouldn't have taken the uh, article down. Sure, you can add a caveat to be more clear, uh, to maybe add a little more detail uh, as to why that was said, what they truly meant. There's nothing wrong with that. But to pull the article down, I would be pushing back against that. The regulator in this case was wrong. Ipsos was wrong. They made a, a statement that T cells don't confer natural immunity is one of the most ridiculous things uh, that anybody could say. Why would they put themselves in that position to take some sort of a scientific stance and put that on the record? It could be hugely embarrassing in the future. Yeah, well, I think what we're looking at is, is full government control of the media here, as you say, a ministry of truth. Now, uh, look, the issue of T-cells, hugely important. It hasn't had the media coverage that it deserves, um, and in fact, not getting the research that it deserves either, at least for, with respect to Public Health England uh, and Public Health Scotland and so on. Um, so let's have a look at this. This is a SARIN study, uh, and uh, the SARIN study is all about COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 immunity and reinfection evaluation. That's what the SARIN uh, ac acronym stands for. Uh, and they perform antibody and PCR testing. Uh, and in this case, they're pre they presented the results of 20,787 healthcare workers, including frontline clinical staff and those in non-clinical roles from 102 NHS trusts. Uh, and they have decided that um, they had, out of that 20,787, identified 44 possible reinfections. Uh, possible. Possible, yes. Uh, and uh, that's based on the amount of confirmatory evidence available. But this is all based on PCR testing and antibody testing. And there's nothing here about uh, T cells, long-term immunity, cross-reactive immunity, uh, and so on the government does not want to go there because that would not fit with the vaccine narrative. Yeah, so the, the reality, again, we, we see this time and time again, the reality, Mike, doesn't fit into the policy. And the governments are trying really hard, and some media uh, organizations are trying really hard to, to you know, force the re what, what is physical reality, what's going on in the world, what's going on with COVID, and force it into a very narrow government uh, uh, portal there, and yes. it's just not working. Um, well, uh, yesterday was Thursday, uh, 8 p.m. Uh, you were out clapping, no doubt. Well, um, I, I, no comment, Mike, on that. But <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, Thursdays is meant to be. Well, initially it was it was clap for heroes, and then it's been uh, since rebranded uh, to clap for carers here. And uh, we just brought up this. This was published on the seventh uh, of. Of January, and these were nurses that were, you know, pushing back. They didn't want to be labeled as heroes, and that means they had to basically rebrand the campaign. A number of 
people who commented described the clapping as a hollow gesture and instead called on the public to campaign for fair pay for nurses, for instance. So again, it seemed to have uh, come to the end of their rope on that. That's on the on the nurses' side, but the, the politicians and people like Piers Morgan and kind of more virtue signaling characters in the media. And like Jon Snow, like, for example. Sure, they're, they're pushing this pretty hard here. And so it was rebranded to Clap for Carers. Uh, so this is meant to sort of kick off this, they relaunched this campaign uh, right after the, you know, around the time of the, 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 the last lockdown. And uh, so we're all supposed to get out Thursdays, 8 p.m. You gotta be out on the street, you gotta be clapping for the carers. And just to look on Twitter, they've, they, they've changed the hashtag, Mike, it's thunderclap, thunderclap for carers. And uh, here's one tweet here, uh, absolutely amazing to see thunderclap for carers trending while I've been doing the other big issue all day and all night, thank you. And then lots of emojis. You see those emojis, Mike? Lots of emojis clapping there. So a lot of clapping's going on on Twitter. A lot of clapping's going on uh, in the media. Matt Hancock, he's talking about it. But is there anybody actually going out and clapping on Thursday night at eight? And what's happening in the country? So uh, we set out uh, our, our clap cam uh, around the country to some different locations. We might do this uh, weekly. We're, we're looking for clapping out on the street. Let's, uh, our first clap cam, we had our, one of our stringers in London. This is one of the biggest housing estates in central London, by the way. So the odds are that someone's going to be clapping out of that community of 3,000. Okay, so we'll go ahead and roll this. This is from London last night. It's eight o'clock. All is quiet. Silence all around. There's not, there's not a lot going on there. Uh, no. So that is one of the largest housing estates in central London. Like nobody's out clapping, basically. And so we, we, we looked at some other locations around the country. We sent the clap cam also out to Wales, Mike, uh, around the Bridge End area. Um, normally, a lot of support normally for, you know, the lockdown and everything recently. Let's let's have a look at at uh, you know how Bridge the reaction End. was. Bridge End in Wales. Let's take a look at this. Bypass day. Seems the people of Wales don't appreciate. You workers anymore. There's nothing going on. Nothing. In, n not much going on in Wales. Uh, as the cameraman said, uh, you know, apparently the people of Wales don't appreciate uh, the, the, the campaign. So, um, but he, he did comment actually that he was able to double that uh, out with his hour of exercise. Mm. So uh, it wasn't a total loss uh, from that point of view, Mike. But where is, where are the, where, and no one's out clapping. I think uh, everyone is becoming increasingly cynical of the whole lockdown situation. Um, and, uh, and that's just one reflection of that. I including nurses yes. uh, as well, some nurses. So maybe um, we'll unofficially launch, well, we're not launching a campaign, but we just said, well, what about everybody get out on Friday nights with their pots and pans, especially those people whose businesses have been shut down people who uh, aren't able to work um, or sort of do the things that they need to do to provide for their uh, family and their employees and bang your pots and pans at 8 p.m. on Friday night. Uh, maybe that might get more traction. What, for 
Not for carers? No, to end the lockdown. To end the lockdown. Anyway, we say that in jest. We yeah. say that in jest. Of course, people wouldn't actually go out and do that. Uh, that, would be, uh, that would be interesting if they did, wouldn't it? Anyway. <laughs> okay, look, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, then uh, please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there. Uh, and uh, also... Do share uh, what you see on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, BitChute, and DLive if you possibly can, uh, because uh, censorship, as we've already shown this morning, is uh, well and truly that agenda is moving forward, uh, and it won't be too long before that help is very much needed. So let's, uh, Patrick, head over to the United States. Um, and, uh, well, Donald Trump has declassified the Russiagate Files. This is a massive bombshell. So last night, uh, we just got word uh, via John Solomon uh, that the White House is going to declassify all of the FBI Russiagate documents, and there's stacks of them. And so this is going to take weeks to go through. And just uh, a little indication here of some of the things that came out on this. Revelations found in the remaining FBI documents are said to reveal how Hillary the Hillary Clinton camp initially invented the Russia collusion hoax to deflect from her own crippling scandals, namely her email scandal at the time. Mm. That was before the election. So, I mean, this was also confirmed in a memo uh, a few weeks ago that was also uh, released or leaked, okay, ahead of this. So uh, there's a lot of information in here, Mike, that's really going to sort of put the final knockout punch uh, to Russiagate, but there's more than that. And what else it's going to reveal here? Let's take a look at this. Now, this is uh, an interesting character. Her name is Fiona Hill, or Dr. Fiona Hill, as she's known in the U.S. media. And this was during the impeachment hearings uh, back in the fall of 2019. And here she is basically saying this was all about impeaching Trump for supposedly thre threatening to withhold arms from the Ukraine and mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, in order to uh, maybe attack his political opponent, Joe Biden, at the time. At, that's when we knew that Biden would likely be the Democratic nominee even before the primaries took place. And so what did we find out? Well, what, this, this trove of documents, Mike, is supposed to show the details about the relationship between Fiona Hill and Christopher Steele. And as it turned out, it was Fiona Hill who introduced the primary subsource uh, to Christopher Steele, the one who produced all of this uh, fictional accounts of what Trump did in Moscow, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, golden showers and all these sort of sort of lurid tales of Trump's uh, escapades. So it was all made up and it was Fiona Hill who was the middleman on this, or <clears throat> middle woman, sorry, flip there. So again, this is the British relationship here. Now she's an academic who's kind of you know embedded in the National Security Council. She uh, lives in the, in the U.S. She supposedly teaches in the U.S. And so she's intimately involved in this fake dossier here. But she is British. She is indeed. So, and, so you have these intelligence operatives like Steele. You have other operatives that we're not sure what they are, like Fiona Hill. And that's not the only one. And we move on and we see the same thing. There's James Comey, FBI director. And who else? has been uh, revealed in this trove of documents. We're told Stefan Halper, uh, who's also in, in British academic circles and think tank circles in Cambridge, also affiliated with Orbis, mm -hmm. I believe, Orbis Business, and he turns out to be an FBI informant, was wearing a wire. So the FBI put a wire on him to go to Carter Page and George Papadopoulos to entrap them or get some information. They're doing this to the Trump campaign. Okay, so this is the Obama administration using the FBI to basically spy on his political opponent who was effectively Donald Trump because Hillary Clinton was the heir apparent uh, of two, a two-term Obama presidency. So again, we see this uh, British connection, Mike. And so what is this at the end of the day? This is, well, is it British meddling in the U.S. 2016 election? Without question without question. And uh, we've got to keep in mind that uh, Richard Dearlove uh, was giving advice to Christopher Steele over the dodgy dossier. So this goes right to the heart of uh, the British intelligence establishment. But, but the privatized wing, so quote, off the books. Yes. So, but clearly deeply involved. We also will add Alexander Downer, uh, the Australian 
uh, diplomat who's also uh, an intelligence operative by many people's estimations. Mm -hmm. Lexi, as he's known in Australia, he's also involved in that. And then we have Joseph Mifsud and some of these other characters. Um, so this is just getting more interesting. So this will provide the proof, these documents. And uh, John Solomon said he's going to be going through those and other people are going to be going through those in the coming days, weeks. I mean, this is probably going to stretch out and drip out for months, actually. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be hugely embarrassing, but I predict the mainstream press will ignore it. So you'll know about it on certain websites like uh, Just the News and Daily Caller, but that's about it. Um, well, of course, Trump has now been impeached for a second time, but that isn't stopping him uh, rolling out some some uh, departing uh, <laughs> shots, shall we call them? Well, yes, indeed. And uh, what Israel wants, Israel gets, as they say, at least with the Trump administration, that certainly has been the case. Look at this. Donald Trump orders a military shift to spur Israeli-Arab cooperation against Iran. Defense policy moves the latest step by the administration to shape the Middle East agenda for Biden. This is interesting. So look at this. This is, uh, this is Gordon Lubold, and this is what he said about this story. He's covering this for the uh, Wall Street Journal. And he's saying, Trump ordered the Pentagon to reorganize its command structure and put Israel in U.S. CENTCOM. Okay. So, so for, for a British audience that doesn't know what CENTCOM is, what, what is it? That's U.S. Central uh, kind of command and control. In, the, in, the, in terms of the Middle East, that base is normally in Qatar. Okay. Uh, so, and, and this was meant to control the theaters, Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever assets the U.S. have or operations the U.S. have in the region. Uh, the hub there is CENTCOM. There's another uh, U.S. base. I think it's in South Carolina. I'm not sure. North mm. Carolina. But uh, so what is this doing? It's folding Israel into uh, this kind of defense setup. Um, but just to go back there, and he said, in a nod to Israel's long wishes and another last-minute policy decision, it will be hard for, un for Biden to undo. Now, that's an interesting comment there. He's saying that Biden wouldn't be able to get out of that. Now, the question is, would Biden want to get out of that? And, you know, the current political uh, atmosphere in America the Israeli lobby still wields a tremendous amount of power. By the way, Sheldon Adelson passed away as one of their big financiers of the Israeli lobby and, of course, a major donor to Trump mm. as well. But in truth, Mike, they're donating to everybody on both sides of the aisle. So the odds that uh, Joe Biden would be able to decouple from that or want to decouple from it, because Kamala Harris is uh, very much IPAC's candidate. Uh, they have put her on stage many times in the last couple of years. So she's about as hawkish uh, for Israel as, as anybody. So again, uh, we, we see this continuity of policy. You think that, that you know, Trump is very different than Biden, that Biden's going to bring back the Iran nuclear deal. A lot of uh, Iranian analysts, including Mohammed Morandi from the University of Tehran, saying, no, Biden is not going to get back mm. into the Iran deal. Okay, that's, it's over. Even if they wanted to, they wouldn't, uh, the Iranians wouldn't have it because they don't trust the U.S. anymore. They see the United States as politically unstable. You get one president, they sign a treaty or a deal. Next party comes in four years later and basically throws it out the window. Mm. So why spend two or three years negotiating on something that's basically going to be chucked out the window when a new administration comes in? So I can't blame the Iranians for having that you know, point of view. So again, the, the, it's definitely more aggressive policy towards Iran in the region. They've folded Israel in like we have a World War I-type power politics situation with entangled alliances getting even closer. And they're, they're trying to bring the uh, Arab Gulf states much tighter in the fold mm. and to, to basically enmesh them with, with Israel as well. So one, attack on one is attack on all. And this is the danger, basically, that, yes. that I see. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on uh, to Parler, and uh, well, the ACLU has spoken up on this now. They, yeah, they have. They've broken their silence here. A very partisan left-wing organization, the American Civil Liberties Union, but they have spoken up, Mike, and said some very encouraging things about the nature of unchecked power with the Silicon Valley, specifically to do with Twitter's deplatforming of Donald Trump. Not just Trump. They basically took hundreds of thousands of Trump supporter accounts off of Twitter in the last week, uh, and also the killing of Parler, which you've 
commented on previously mm -hmm. and that we've reported on. Um, so the ACLU is saying this. Now, what's Jack Dorsey saying? He's been quiet uh, ever since the deplatforming of Trump, but he has broken his silence. But not publicly? No, well, on Twitter. Uh -huh. Yeah, and we'll look at what he's, he said here. And this is, uh, this is uh, interesting. So this is what Jack Dorsey is saying. This is worth reading, Mike, because this is historic. They've taken a sitting U.S. president off the biggest social media platform, arguably, in the world. He says, I believe this was the right decision for Twitter. We faced extraordinary and an untenable circumstance. I disagree with that. But anyway, he goes on, uh, forcing us to focus all of our actions on public safety, uh, offline harm uh, as a result of online speech is demonstrably real and what drives our policy and enforcement above all. That's a pretty uh, serious statement there, Mike, that you can see where things are heading with a statement like that. Offline harm as a result of online speech, okay? And uh, he goes on here, and he starts contradicting himself. Jack is a confused individual uh, here, and who knows why that is, what sort of state of mind he's in, but he's, this is what he says. That said, having to ban an account has real and significant ramifications. While there are clear and obvious exceptions, I feel a ban is a failure of ours ultimately to promote healthy conversation and a time for us to reflect on our operations and the environment around us. And then he finally rounds this out. That said, uh, and he goes on, well, anyway, we have a, a repeat on that. But so he's contradicting himself a little bit. Now, what's interesting is Project Veritas, uh, James O'Keefe's investigative body is based in New York, uh, mm -hmm. outside of New York City. One of Twitter's uh, employees leaked uh, a conversation that Jack had with some employees about their operation to basically purge uh, not only Trump, but all of Trump's supporters uh, and any, who knows exactly what he meant. We've got the video, which we can play you, and I think it's fascinating, and I would also like your comment on this afterwards, Mike. Okay, let's have a look at this then. Always feel free to express yourself in whatever format, manifestation feels like. do intend to do a full retro, as I said in my note, it is going to take some time. Um, and then the, the other thing, just to just to close out a little bit, we, you know, we, we are focused on one account right now, but this is going to be much bigger than just one account, and it's going to go on for much longer than just this day, this week, the next few weeks, it's going to go on beyond the inauguration. We have to expect that, we have to be ready for that. So the focus is certainly on this account and uh, how it ties to real-world violence, but also we need to think much longer term around how these dynamics play out over time. Um, I don't believe this is going away anytime soon, and the moves that we're making today uh, around QAnon, uh, for instance, is one such example of a much broader approach um, that we should be looking at um, and going deeper on. So, um, the team has a lot of work and a lot of focus on this particular issue. Um, we also need to give them the space and the support to focus on the, the much bigger picture uh, because it is, it is not going away. Um, you know, the, the U.S. is extremely divided. Uh, our platform is uh, showing that uh, every single day. And our role is to protect the integrity of that conversation uh, and do what we can to make sure that no one is being harmed uh, based off that. There you have it, Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, recorded by one of his own employees. Well, so what do you think about what he said there? It was, it shows that there was. It, well, what he's certainly saying is that they're only getting started, right. and and uh, that you know he's talking about they're not going away or the situation isn't going away. Or the deplorables or the. I wasn't sure whether that's what he meant, or whether he whether he meant that that he was recognizing that there was uh, that that you know that there is a body of of the population that absolutely takes a particular view of the world and a particular view of uh, modern day events, um, and that you know that is a, a, a dangerous uh, 
ideology, if, if that would how he, that's how he would probably view it, a, right. a dangerous ideology to have promoted on his platform. So he's going to have to uh, up the game to make sure that the ideology that he prefers to see is the one which is amplified. No, sure. And uh, I'm, I'm going to point out a couple of things in terms of the hypocrisy of Jack Dorsey. Um, for, from, from 2013 onwards, uh, jihadi groups, ISIS groups were fundraising on Twitter. They were raising money and recruiting fighters for years on Twitter. Mm. And they almost did nothing about it until it became a thing in the media. But this is years after that was festering, Mike. Mm. And it seemed to me, because that aligned with the US uh, and UK and NATO policy at the time, they were supporting the rebels in Syria. They didn't have any problem with that. So there's no impetus. That's um, an international terrorist group that have killed hundreds of thousands of people mm. on the aggregate, if you want to add everything up, okay? Now, uh, Black Lives Matter, post-George Floyd, there was rioting, looting, arson across the country. Many people died as a result of that. Those were organized and basically promoted on Twitter and Facebook. And according to law enforcement, Mike, this past DC protest, what we saw last week, this horrible quote images, mm -hmm. um, most of the uh, main antagonists were doing their uh, organizing and all their sort of threats and whatnot on Facebook and Twitter and not Parler per se. Mm -hmm. Although there might have been things on Parler that hasn't come out to light yet uh, until they go through the people will go through the data. You'll probably cover that next week mm -hmm. um, on, on that story. But so th this idea that anything harmful uh, needs to be taken down, but only some things and not others. And it's okay on, uh, we can shut down Parler, but when the same people that we're pointing the finger at do it on our platform, we don't shut our platform down. So I don't understand where the rules are on, on this. Well, look, uh, this, this has been a problem that's been around for a long time. When was it 2011, 2012, 2013? The uh, attempt to regulate the UK press through the uh, Leveson inquiry. Uh, and this was absolutely the, the issue at that time. The fact was there was no need for additional regulation because th the activities that led to the Leveson inquiry were illegal. They were already illegal, mm -hmm. right? The, the phone hacking was illegal and it should be prosecuted under the laws that existed at the time. But no, that wasn't sufficient. We had to bring in new regulation mm -hmm. for the press. And we've already covered this morning an example of where that has led. Okay. And so it's, it's, crimes are already covered right, under so, existing laws. So anybody promoting terrorist activity on social media, that is already illegal and should be prosecuted. And we have systems in place for that already, right? It, exactly. So, so the argument that, that the legislation hasn't kept up with the, the modern world and that social media has come along and really the legislation doesn't cover those circumstances, this isn't true. No, it's not. And, yeah. and so, so this well, argument of, for regulation of social media is, is based on uh, an attempt to uh, you know, bring legis specific legislation to deal with narratives that governments don't like. Or that parties don't like. In the, in the case of Twitter, it's a Democrat Party-oriented organization. Sure. Uh, Google is the same. Facebook is Democrat as well. So in this case, is Jack Dorsey not, as he even said in his own words, uh, is he not really purging the political opposition of what he sees and what Twitter employees view as a opposition party, labeling all Trump supporters as domestic terrorists? This is what's happening in America, it's absolutely outrageous. Mm. But it's being allowed to happen because of an emotive narrative, which is which is uh, in motion now. And uh, and then so they're trying to basically staple all this uh, emergency legislation, emergency actions on the back of an emotive narrative that's being hyped up and amped up by mainstream media and validated uh, by all the censorship uh, by by social media firms at least in their political corner, yes. it's being validated. Okay, well, is this having any effect on these companies' bottom lines then? Well, this is a good question. And, uh, you know, here's the latest, Mike. And again, this is uh, from John Solomon's Just the News. They're doing great work. Um, after Trump ban and also Facebook and Twitter, they, they've seen a combined loss of 51 billion in terms of market cap. Mm. So the share prices are tanking as a result of that. So what's going on here, Mike, is, is the market 
recognizing that this isn't good for the business model of Facebook and Twitter, or are these conservative investors pulling their money out of Facebook in terms of uh, institutional uh, portfolios, you know, pension funds, I don't know, the Koch brothers, for instance, Warren Buffett, any of those big players could make some major move uh, in terms of investment portfolios and, and adversely affect the share price of those. But what's, what do you think is happening there? Is that the market basically frowning on the censorship agenda that they've come out of the closet and the market doesn't like this? I think it's a recognition that uh, from the market that lots of people aren't going to like this and therefore they're going to be turned away from, from these platforms. So it, sure. it's killed their authenticity of the, you know, their free internet, free internet attitude, mm. culture, those bona fides that made those social media companies so, quote, revolutionary at the time. Now they've become extensions of the police state, extensions of a one-party state. And the market's looking at this and saying, mm, we yeah. don't see a big future here. So this is interesting. So we want to keep an eye keep on an that. Keep an eye on this, yes. Okay, well, let's come back to uh, coronavirus. And, well, more variants are coming. Patrick, you've got to be shaking in your boots right now. Uh, we had the original and the best, uh, Kobe, uh, who started last March in the UK. Uh, then the new variant came along because Kobe was running out of steam. Uh, and uh, basically the new variant had to give a new boost to the uh, to the narrative. We sort of got a hint of a South African variant, which was sort of bandied about a little bit, but didn't really gain any traction. But now we've got the Brazilian, you don't want to have a Brazilian. Uh, oh, the Samba variant. Yes. The Samba variant from, from uh, Brazil. So it's, li it's supposedly more lively and can shimmy better than the South African variant, and much better than the, you know, the, the new variant, the, yeah, the, the UK, well, the UK yeah, variant. Coroni has just been left. I think I heard Coroni got bored uh, because they, when they shut the pubs down, Mike, and they shut the restaurants down, Coroni just basically said, "Look, this isn't worth it." No, for it's me. not worth it. No. So he just sort of legged it, and now we've got the Brazilian variant. So what's this all about? Uh, well, uh, whatever it's about, it, it's already having a chilling effect on, uh, on travel because uh, anyone wanting to come to the UK from Argentina or through Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia, Chile, Cape Verde, Colombia, Ecuador, French Guiana, uh, Guyana, Paraguay, Panama, Portugal, and the Azores and Madeira, uh, Peru. Did I mention Peru? No, Peru, uh, Suriname, and Uruguay, Venezuela. Any of those people won't be allowed uh, into the UK anymore. So the whole of South America is now infected with a new and Portugal with a new version of uh, Coroni. Yes, basically. but but if you're if you're not concerned about this, well, get a load of this. This is uh, Trevor Bedford, who's uh, an immunologist. After 10 months of relative quiescence, we've started to see some striking evolution of SARS-CoV-2. He was uh, reporting on Twitter with repeated evolutionary pattern in the SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern emerging from the UK, South Africa and Brazil. Uh, in SARS-CoV-2, the viral spike protein and in particular the receptor binding domain is a locus for important viral evolution uh, and is the primary target for the human immune response. My brackets highly speculative hypothesis is that the emergence of these variant uh, viruses arises in cases of chronic infection during which the immune system places great pressure on the virus to escape immunity and the virus does so by getting really good at getting into cells. So this is fantastic news for anybody um, who wants to pursue a narrative that perhaps, uh, you know, we can't come out of lockdown too soon or we can't come out of lockdown at all because we just invent a new, a new variant uh, and before you know it, you can start the whole thing again. Isn't this what we've had in the last two months? And then, so now they're saying that uh, shutting down flights between the U.S. and the U.K., Americans, the press have got a hold of this new variant, the British variant, uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, and they shut down travel uh, because it's just too too risky. You too, know, too risky. Could bring this new, you know, vicious new variant. Well, and in fact, in France, for example, uh, the curfew has now been moved forward from 8 p.m. to 6 p.m. So from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., you must be in your home unless you've got a valid excuse for not being in your home. Uh, people being fined if they haven't filled in the correct online form, of yeah, course. Is that because, because of the British variant? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, right. But U.S. scientists are now calling it uh, a super COVID variant. These are super COVID variants. It's not just uh, COVID, it's super COVID. Uh, and uh, these super COVID variants are not only be going to become more common, 
as case numbers surge across the globe, uh, because more cases there are, the greater the number of people with rare chronic infections. Um, so we're going to see more and more and more of these. So they say. So they say. And who are the type of people that are promoting this? Uh, well, it's our old friend, Neil Ferguson. Uh, and uh, he didn't really say this, but this is what he said if he had been speaking to me. He, he would have said, I'm back and you won't be getting out of lockdown, that is, until autumn at the earliest. And in autumn, we can start it all again. Don't worry, I'll still be visiting my girlfriend. So apparently he's back in stage again, despite the fact that he had to resign from that as a result of breaking the lockdown rules to visit his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and so he'll still be doing that. He doesn't care. He's not really concerned. So that's what he would have said if he had been speaking to me, which he wasn't. Uh, but let's look at what, what he did actually say. Uh, he said, uh, we couldn't have predicted that this new variant come, uh, would come up, uh, but the new variant without doubt will make the re relaxation of restrictions more difficult. Um, so he is talking about uh, lockdown staying in place until uh, autumn. Uh, whether we can relax restri restrictions temporarily on requirements for isolation for people who have had a positive test is a question for policymakers. So he's saying that although the lockdown is likely to have to stay in place until autumn, uh, that people who have had COVID-19 or have antibodies for COVID-19 may be allowed to have some kind of relaxed restrictions uh, in place. Uh, but of course, what's that narrative all about? Well, that's about immunity passports, because unless you can demonstrate that you've had COVID-19 uh, or that you have antibodies, let's not talk about T-cells, just stick with antibodies. Yeah, T-cells don't exist. No, they don't yeah. exist. Um, unless you can demonstrate that, then of course, how do you get your the restrictions uh, um, relaxed for you personally? So the only way to do that would be to have some kind of... Uh, uh, immunity passport and that is what he is arguing for here biosurveillance all, yes. all sorts of yes. so th they're creating a rat's maze uh clearly is what you know this week it's this variant in three weeks mike there'll be a new variant a new goldstein will be active in the area and will you know lock down this is like chapter and verse straight out of uh george orwell's uh, 1984 so airstrip one moves ahead so where, where does neil ferguson uh, who has no credibility whatsoever He's back on the payroll now? Yes, seems to be, yes. So rewarded for his past failures. As he has been many, many times. Let's not forget that Neil Ferguson was the man behind the slaughtered on suspicion policy for uh, foot and mouth disease, which resulted in millions of British uh, cattle herds being culled unnecessarily. Uh, and uh, do have a look at our documentary, Slaughtered on Suspicion, and, for more on that. And he's also over-egged the swine flu. Yes. Over-egged the avian flu, I believe. And he has a whole litany His, of, yes. of, of getting it wrong. I mean, not just getting it wrong, Mike, but getting it wrong on an epic biblical scale. Who is this? He must be very well connected. Or <laughs> Some people seem to like the narratives he presents. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. So uh, a lot of people got in touch, and I got a lot of comments about this ITV News segment here. Uh, this was aired last night. It was a grandfather's powerful message from a COVID ICU unit. Uh, presumably, this was at St. George's uh, Hospital uh, in London here. This is uh, Alan Carslake here, and it was a quite a, uh, a, according to some people, quite an emotional segment. Uh, supposedly, he was suffering with, with COVID. They didn't specifically say what he had, which I thought was interesting, Mike. That wasn't specifically mentioned. It's assumed that he's a COVID survivor, but they didn't say specifically, mm -hmm. which I thought was incredibly interesting uh, here, but uh, here's what uh, they were saying about him. Desperate to see his grandchildren again, a visibly upset COVID patient in intensive care has stressed the importance of following virus restrictions. So he wouldn't be able to actually see his grandchildren, Mike. Is that right? If he was released today, he wouldn't be able to see his grandchildren because of restrictions. Indeed. So this is kind of a strange mixed message mm -hmm. being sent here by ITV, but, uh, you know, reporting is sometimes confusing. That's the nature of the business. But what I thought was interesting, Mike, I was looking at the comments uh, on Twitter and looking at some of the accounts, and there's just a barrage of, of comments that are sort of uh, going along with the narrative. Let's look at some of these. I think it's absolutely fascinating. You know, a lot of people are saying, are these real accounts? Are these troll accounts? Is it 77 Brigade? Mm -hmm. Who knows? 
but this is what was coming out here, and I highlighted a few of the key words. So clearly they run this emotive segment, Mike, and they, they, they're getting the response immediately on social media. Please wear a mask and stay at home, uh, says Simone here. Uh, and then this is uh, looks like, a, by all accounts, a real person here. Watch this. So it's like it's a gripping thing. Everyone must mm -hmm. watch it. And he's saying, shame on you, shame on you. Anybody who's calling it a hoax or anybody who's a skeptic, shame on you. Look at this segment. How could you think or have any questions after looking at this media segment? So the power is with the media segment here. And this is another one here. I hope this is a major message for everyone who is continually going out and violating the rules. And uh, for you know anybody who says he doesn't look ill, I want to drag them out uh, by their hair around to the nearest mortuary. Uh, so, you know, the demagoguery is quite heavy. There's hundreds of these comments that just came in like a waterfall. And here, stay indoors. Stop partying and going out irresponsibly. So it's like stick with the rules. And some of these are sock puppet accounts. I, some of them are, uh, look like they're real accounts. And for anyone who barks on about this only affecting old people. So again, another aspect of the government messaging that we see and here we go. This can happen to anyone. Well, that's not true. Uh, it can't really happen to anyone. It really only happens to a certain segment of people end up in ICUs. But we see this messaging being put forth. And that's an interesting account there, Mike. It's a fan account for uh, some TV series. And it's got her name plus 2128407. That's a typical 77 Brigade type Twitter address. So who knows uh, who some of these people are. This one's from Nigeria. Here, she's weighing in, stay safe to protect everyone. So the implication here is that we all, everyone needs to be protected, whether you're sick or not, whether you're infected or not. So again, you can see how the public messaging is going here. And then just some of the last ones. Show this to those rule breakers, says Pooja. I went to Sainsbury's today, many not wearing masks in Sainsbury's. So Lee Armstrong's very upset about that. And I won't say what else he said, there's some profanity. And then F you, if you're going out and meeting people, this lockdown says Yasmin, the Henley ghost. She's got uh, lovely purple and blue hair there, Mike. So th we, we see tons of this. And so the question is, uh, they put the uh, segment out to, to make a certain uh, effect. And then immediately it's validated by this waterfall of social media. Mm. Uh, uh, replies and from very dubious accounts. I mean, what do you think about this? I mean, you've you've probably seen this phenomenon, people piling in on the back of a BBC or the back of an ITV or Channel Four video on social media. I've never I never see that level of waterfalls of, of replies only on those reports. Yes. So uh, I think I think you're right to identify this as, you know, influence 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 activity for sure. Yes. But look, uh, let's let's move on to this, uh, because the weekly National Influenza and COVID-19 Surveillance Report has been published. Uh, this is a week two report up to week one data for the 14th of January 2021. Uh, now, of course, this used to be the weekly National Influenza Surveillance Report. Uh, and a few months ago, uh, COVID-19 was added to it. And amazingly enough, Patrick, since COVID-19 was added to the weekly surveillance report, influenza doesn't get much of a look in. So let's just have a look at uh, the graph for 2020-2021, uh, showing positive samples for, for influenza and weekly positivity for influenza and SARS-CoV-2 in England. And what do we have here? Uh, the bars, the sort of uh, purple and green bars at the bottom represent the uh, positive samples um, for flu. Uh, and influenza A is uh, the purpley color, influenza B is the green color. I'm quite sure those are just coincidental colors. Uh, but you'll see that there's virtually nothing to report. Nothing there. One case, how two that, cases. How is that possible? This is a very good question. Let's look at the previous year uh, when there was no SARS-CoV-2. So this is the 2019-2020. Uh, and we can see that the numbers are somewhat higher on a weekly basis, uh, 800, 1,000. Now, of course, these are numbers which are significantly lower than the current numbers that are being bandied about uh, by the government with respect to SARS-CoV-2, because, of course, there wasn't the, 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 the um, testing regime in place uh, at, that, at that time for any... I mean, this is a absolutely 
unprecedented testing regime that we have in place for, for SARS-CoV-2. So you're saying it could be much higher uh, if there was that level of testing for flu. And, oh, I'm quite sure they would have found all kinds of positive tests for flu if they'd run a testing regime for flu, like they're running the testing regime for SARS-CoV-2. So the question is, what happened to the flu? Was it scared out of town by Coroni? This is a this is a very good question. Has it been? So let's look at 2017-2018, uh, and we'll see very similar numbers, but a different proportion between influenza A and influenza B. So if we come back to 2020, 2021 again, as you can see, Flu has just disappeared, uh, but it's not just in the UK. If we look globally, we've shown this graphic before, but this is from the World Health Organization. This is uh, influenza laboratory surveillance information for the entire planet, um, Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. So it is winter in some parts of the world whenever we get to the, the, you know, the summer months of, uh, in, in the UK. But you can see that from week, effectively, what is that week 16 onwards of 2020, flu disappeared. It is gone. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. It's, a, it's miracle. a miracle. So another point to make from these surveillance reports from the past, uh, if we look at uh, this one, which is last year's influenza surveillance graphs uh, from the published on the 9th of January 2020, we find uh, that the government is very happy to use Euromomo data uh, to show excess mortality. So in this case, this is excess all-cause mortality by week of death through the Euromomo algorithm in all ages in England. Um, and uh, so that, that was a, a key feature of those surveillance reports in previous years. It's not a feature, it doesn't feature at all in the surveillance reports this year. So I thought, well, okay, if it was good enough for Public Health England in 2020 and previous, then let's have a look at what the Euromomo data, which we did uh, extensively last year, but let's look at uh, this year what's going on right now. Uh, with respect to excess mortality, all-cause mortality in England. Uh, well, here's the graphic for England, uh, and we can see this runs from uh, 2016 to 2020, uh, well, to 2021, in fact. Uh, but you'll see that the uh, levels of excess mortality that we're seeing right now are not unusual because we saw the same levels of excess mortality in 2018 and this pretty much the same levels of excess mortality in 2017. So nothing going on in England. Uh, we do see the spike for, for uh, April, May time, but that was down to lockdown deaths mainly. Let's have a look at Northern Ireland. Is there anything going on there? Nope, not really. What about uh, where we go, Scotland? Well, uh, Scotland, in fact, has got excess mortality levels right now, which are below peaks that we've seen in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, so the peak in 2018, quite a bit higher than we're seeing at the moment. Uh, and uh, well, let's look at Wales then. Uh, and really nothing, oh, sorry, nothing to see there either. Um, so uh, so 2020 is, is, is the dotted blue line or red No, 2020 line? is all of the stuff on the right-hand side. 20, uh, yep. So as you, as you move towards the left, you're going backwards in time. The dotted red line is, is uh, you know. The baseline. Uh, no, that, that is uh, standard deviations above what's normal. So, so okay. uh, the, uh, the zero line is basically what you see on screen there for Wales is pretty much running along the normal uh, mortality levels. So, sure. so that's that. Okay, let's move on then. You got a sneak preview of it. Let's move on to this uh, and the military uh, because we now have 5,300 personnel committed to winter and COVID operations in the UK. Uh, and uh, well, they're doing all kinds of things from uh, helping in hospitals uh, to running tests, helping run tests. So they're working inside NHS hospitals. A thousand of them are working in the NHS every day. In Manchester, 800 personnel are deploying from nine regiments across the British Army to, uh, at the request of the Greater Manchester Combined Authority to support targeted asymptomatic testing of specific populations. Uh, and so we got uh, nice graphics of them uh, taking these tests with their masks and their visors uh, and, uh, and helping people uh, take swab samples. It's spectacular stuff, Patrick. More and more military on the streets. We've got to get used to having the military in civilian life because that is uh, increasingly part of uh, what should be going on. And I think I didn't show those graphics. I do apologize. <laughs> we were looking at us there. 
And so they're, they're looking for asympto asymptomatic testing? Asymptomatic testing. And they need to wear masks, double visors, and oh, well, aprons, and of, of course. bin bags, the whole but, lot. But they've got to have, uh, so if we just... Uh, so healthy people that are I didn't, uh, showing no symptoms. I had the wrong thing on screen, so let's just have a look at some of those. So they're taking swab samples, um, and there you go, masked up and visored up. It's good stuff. For asymptomatic, healthy people. Why would a someone who's healthy who's asymptomatic, why would you want to get tested? Um, if, if, but if you want to build a narrative, uh, if, if, if you want to absolutely drive the, the numbers of cases uh, to the, through the, 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 the roof, then that's what you need to do. Because as we've proven in previous uh, programs and reports and many others is that uh, PCR testing is basically producing mountains of false positives. Yes, indeed. Picking up dead nucleotides in your system. Yes. You, you have no infection. You're not a case. You're not an infection, but you're listed as a case uh, by by the government. Yes. And policy is driven on the back of those cases, right? Indeed. Yeah. Right. Where does that take us? Uh, what has Bill Gates been up to? Well, we wanted to uh, maybe end things on a feel-good story, and there he is, uh, the man who's tasked with saving the planet and saving us from ourselves. In fact, this is Bill Gates, who's just become America's biggest owner of farmland. Uh, as if he doesn't own everything else. Here he is. Uh, he's been quietly snatching up no less than 242,000 acres. Is that right? Or is that million? No, no, it's, it's, sure. th it's thousand. Okay. Uh, of farmland across the United States. And uh, just a little bit of additional background there. His largest holdings are in Louisiana, Arkansas, and Nebraska. You can see those are quite big swaths of land. Additionally, he has a stake of 25,750 acres outside of Phoenix, Arizona, which he's going to develop into a new suburb, apparently sustainable, uh, I can't imagine, and probably COVID safe. Ah, right. So he's taking the farmland and turning it into something else? Well, in this case, yes. But then, what you're, so you're asking the question, like, why is Bill Gates so invested in farmland and food production? Why would, what would Bill Gates be interested in doing with, with food? Uh, genetic modification, perhaps? Well, it does look like that. Let's take a look at this. And this obviously began to appear in 2012. Bill Gates and Monsanto team up to fight world hunger. If that doesn't make you feel warm inside, uh, I don't know what does. But here's a little bit more detail on his relationship with this industry. He purchased back then 500,000 shares of Monsanto, genetically modified food giant at the time worth uh, 23 million. I'm sure Bill gets a good return on that as he normally does. Uh, but so this is back when The Guardian was actually doing uh, journalism, basically. And they were pointing this out as a potential, you know, something to be concerned about possibly there. So that was interesting. So Bill Gates is in the farming business, so the food production business, the GMO business. What's not to like? Where could it go wrong? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Well, we must leave it there for today. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend and hope to see you then. Bye-bye.